Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast. Now going on our 11th year. Robert with my co-host, Sports Radio 610, Sean Bajani. Later in the show, we preview the Astros playoffs, the first round. We have an opponent, but joining us right now to preview the Texans-Falcons game Sunday is Will McFadden, the host of the Believe in Falcons podcast, part of the Believe Network. Thanks so much for doing this and giving us a few minutes, Mark. Yeah, I'm really excited to uh, to be joining you guys to talk about this game. It, it should be really exciting. Uh, we are very um, much looking forward to welcoming C.J. Stroud, Will Anderson, and this revamped kind of Texan squad to uh, to Atlanta. Absolutely. And you mentioned Stroud. Well, I'm going to ask you about Desmond Ritter. How has that experience been? Are you already eyeing QB draft boards or is it too early for that? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, you had to start with Desmond Ritter, right? Because that's been the topic uh, du jour all week long. And yeah, I mean, when you look specifically at like what somebody like CJ Stroud is doing, you realize, hey, it's it is possible right? Not every quarterback comes in here and and has success immediately. Like that is the select few, but this is eight starts now for Desmond Ritter. So essentially half of, of a rookie season, even though he's in year two. And in a lot of ways, it feels like he's kind of regressed recently. And it's in a few different areas, right? It's not one thing that you can point to, to say, Hey man, you got to make better reads or your pocket awareness is, is really, it's, kind of a bunch of different things that crop up at, at different times. The best metaphor is kind of when you're in a rowboat, right? And it's sinking and there's one hole that pops open and then you plug it and another hole pops up. It's been a little bit of that for Desmond Ritter. And so the Falcons are hard at work trying to address that, right? Like what else are they going to say? But the key here and what they're going to be looking for on Sunday is a faster start offensively. He's been able to settle down in games the second half against Jacksonville wasn't actually that bad, even though they only scored seven points. But they just have to find a way to get something going sooner. Even in their two wins, took two really big fourth quarters for them to come back and win those games. That's not sustainable in the NFL. That's not the way Arthur Smith wants to play. So they need to find a way to get Desmond Ritter comfortable quicker, but also just kind of get the whole offense going a little bit earlier in games. Just looking over the offensive numbers, Will, um, you know, at, at the Falcons and what they've done so far, they've obviously had a, a lot of success in running the football. But I think in terms of their pass offense, it's near at the very bottom of the league. What's their big play potential been like so far through these first four weeks? They've got a lot of guys on offense, extremely talented. And I've heard the term positionless players offensively. Mm-hmm. Because there's so many different things you can do with guys like Pitts, who's a tight end, but he doesn't really play like one, and uh, two-headed monster at running back, and Drake London, and I mean, there's just guys all over the place. H- have you guys seen that big play potential in in how detrimental that could be to an opposing team's defense? You know, we've seen it in spurts. We saw it the first two weeks against Carolina and Green Bay to kind of close the game out, hit a big play to Mac Collins week one hit a big play to Kyle Pitts and that was supposed to be the dream of Desmond Ritter over Marcus Mariota this year because Marcus Mariota just was not able to connect on these deep shots the Falcons by and large like they're cool with the run game being their identity even if everybody's going to say look the Falcons want to run the ball yeah sure they want to run the ball even if you know it's coming what they need to do though and, and the way this offense is supposed to work is when you get that opportunity to land a little bit of a haymaker, you got to hit it. And that's something that you saw against Detroit early in that game. They had a play to Kyle Pitts dialed up. He was open. He had a couple of steps on his defender, and it was an overthrow. And even this past week, they took a deep shot to Drake London. It got batted away because it wasn't, it was kind of a little bit underthrown. Later on, Matt Collins, same type of deal. Easy that away for the the defender because it was way underthrown. And then he comes back and and Desmond Ritter will have like a third and 15 and he just rips the ball in there in a tight window right on the money and so you see the flashes but the explosive play especially through the air has not really been there. It's not been for a lack of of trying, but it's it's also not the the thing that I love about CJ Stroud is that he 
constantly is poking and prodding kind of all parts of the field. It's something Matt Ryan did really well is you just keep a defense off balance because they really feel at any point, any part of the field is, is up for grabs. And the Falcons have not been that way. I don't know if it's because of where the play is designed to go. I don't know if it's because of Desmond Ritter's comfort level, a lack of protection, giving them time. But so far there there's three, four times a game. They'll try to take that top off, but it's not a huge component of Atlanta's offense, which is a shame because you do have a Kyle Pitts. You do have a Drake London, these guys who are supposed to win downfield, Matt Collins, so far, their most explosive player has been Bajan Robinson. You just uh, mentioned the name, and we got a lot of Longhorn fans in Houston following Bijan Robinson. He's right behind C.J. Stroud, actually, in MVP odds as we speak. How are the Bijan vibes in the ATL, and what stuck out so far? No, the vibes are great. I mean, he is, as advertised, in fact, the only thing souring the vibes is C.J. Stroud. Right, because he's playing so well, he's taking some of the shine away from Bajan and that offensive rookie of the year uh, race. But I mean, it should be a great race all season long. He has been the the bread and butter for the bread and butter part of this offense. He has bailed out Atlanta's offense many times already. Even the moments where he kind of comes up just short, like he did on the very first third down of last week's game against Jacksonville, he makes a highlight happen. Right. It was the very first, I think, probably Toy Story highlight that everybody saw waking up bright and early on Sunday morning. And then you see Bajan juking a linebacker in, in the open field. He doesn't ultimately make the first down. They end up punting on fourth and one. But he came about as close as anybody could. And that's kind of been the story of Bajan Robinson this year so far for Atlanta is he's had to do a lot kind of by himself, whether that's make two people miss in the hole or catch a one-handed pass because it's a little bit off target, but he's done it all so far. And you would like to think that they're, they're going to get him some help. That Some of these other playmakers that the Falcons have are going to chip in eventually. And, and that ultimately the, the totality of these individual parts will get the Falcons offense jump-started like they like to say, but right now there, there's no need to get Bajan jump-started. He came ready to play from day one and he is so much fun to watch. I mean, I, I I think everybody here in Atlanta is just really, really excited to have him for the foreseeable future, even if in April they were kind of questioning the pick. And you talk about the excitement. I mean, obviously people in here in Houston are uh, extremely excited with what they have going on uh, with their quarterback, C.J. Stroud, who you mentioned, their head coach, just a complete uh, turnaround, it seems, that uh, we've witnessed with our very eyes these first four weeks of the season compared to what – uh, the fan base and the organization has uh, gone through the last three years. Interested to know from you what the mood, the vibe is after the Falcons had been kind of reeling these last two weeks. They're coming in having dropped two straight. The Texans are heading to your place having won two straight. Uh, seemingly confidence sky high for the Texans. What, what's it like for the Falcons as they're trying, as you say, to kind of piece things together offensively and get it going? Yeah, to understand kind of the mindset, I think, of of the fan base right now, you have to understand that the journey over the last couple of years, right? When Arthur Smith and, and Terry Fondo came in as head coach and GM in 2021, they inherited a cap situation that was among the worst in the league, right? Matt Ryan, ton of dead cap, Julio Jones, ton of dead cap. They even had like Desmond Trufant still on the books. So just a lot of money tied up in players that were no longer here until this offseason. So now you are starting to see the team that Arthur Smith and Terry Fano are able to put a little bit more of their stamp on defensively with all of these incoming free agents, guys like Jesse Bates, Caden Ellis, Calais Campbell, David Onyemata, Jeff Okuda, who they trade for. You're really seeing the identity totally different. It's come through. And that has been a bright spot for Atlanta so far. Their defense, I think, is pretty legit and will be legit for the rest of the year. But offensively, they, A, have not been able to make that same amount of free agency investment. It's been largely through the draft and spending some of these early draft picks on your offense. But that's why the emphasis really is on this year and why there is maybe so much stress right now for a team that is two and two. And, and the coaching staff, Arthur Smith, 
they are all saying the right things. You know, they're saying we are two and two. Be patient. It's early in the season. We're working to get some things figured out, but it's not going to necessarily happen overnight. And to kind of jerk the wheel, which is a phrase he's used this week, specifically in, in reference to Desmond Ritter and just the way that you bring along a young quarterback, you can't overreact to everything. But I would say in the fan base, yeah, they're overreacting a little bit to this 0-2 skid. And there's questions about should Taylor Heineke be the starter now over Desmond Ritter? Do you pull him? I mean, I've seen it mostly from the fantasy football community who hates Arthur Smith uh, on Twitter. But do they trade Kyle Pitts? What are they doing with him? Do they have any interest in utilizing him? So I think a lot of people are, are looking at Atlanta's offense, which coming into the season was expected to be one of the most fun, mad scientist, like creative offenses in the league. And through four games, it really hasn't been. And some of the best players are putting up weird stat lines that don't make any sense. So yeah, they're, like there's a lot of stuff that needs to be figured out with this team. I personally trust the coaching staff based on what I've seen, certainly offensively the last two years for them to get it figured out. But the panic button if it's not been pressed yet people are are kind of like warming up their hands they're 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 lingering over it they want to press the panic button at least in the fan base because of what this year means they've been patient for two years now they want the playoffs now they want one playoff game win you know like that's kind of the expectation for this season so even though they're two and two losing the last two has got a lot of people riled up Will, the story in Houston, besides the really good play the last couple of weeks, has been this mash unit O-line that they've tried to piece together. And, I mean, if you've got a pulse, you might get a call by the Texans if you know how to get into a three-point stance. And Sean can follow up on this, but we, we have some good news, maybe. The reports are right tackle. Titus Howard is back this week, although he's likely playing left guard because yeah. we're on our third or fourth or fifth or sixth. I forget how many left guards have gone down with season-ending injuries, but we've had we've had so many injuries, we've had two Kendricks go down at left guard. That's how <laughs> bad it is uh, for the season. And then Juice Scruggs, he is still probably out the starting center, uh, potential guard down the road too. And then, Sean, you can update Laramie Tunsil, all pro, pro, pro Bowl left tackle Laramie Tunsil. What do you think is going to happen? Is he still up in the air right now? Well, Tunsil was limited at practice today, and as you mentioned, uh, Titus Howard, you know, was lined up at left guard in the one uh, first team takeoff rep that the media is allowed to see. Uh, they disperse after that and go on to individual drills, and we don't get to see any other team activities on Wednesday, typically Thursday and Friday as well. Everything else is pretty, you know, pretty much the same across the board, but it, what, what it's going to come down to, I think, is how those players fare to practice today, how they fare Thursday and Friday in terms of Josh Jones, who has a massive club on his right hand, who just had surgery after uh, spraining a muscle. Uh, but he's also got his left hand wrap. That would be the logical choice to put in at left guard. So it's going to be kind of a wait and see approach to what the Texans do this week on the offensive line front. You know, we'll, we'll find more out on Friday. Laramie's a big one. Because even when he's been dressed out and practiced, it's been limited over the course of the last three weeks. And that's a big one, I think, in terms of what they decide to do ultimately a left guard. Because if Laramie can play, but he's not 100%, maybe that's the idea that you're thinking, well, Titus's hand is pretty much fully healed. At least he can help out Tunsil while Fant has held his own at the right tackle position. So, uh, we'll find out more on Friday, but I'd be interested to know from from uh, Will's perspective, you know full well, outside looking in what the Texans have dealt with on the injury front uh, with their offensive line. You just got mentioning how legit uh, that um, defense is and has been for the Falcons. I was pouring over some numbers. I mean, they're like top 10, uh, you know, in a lot of categories, and boy, a look at the pass defense and the rush defense and the way that they're getting to the quarterback. I feel like those guys got to be licking their chops at this point. No, for starters, I'm very glad that you guys all laid out that offensive line situation for Houston, because I was trying to make sense of it, looking through the injury reports. We're still trying stories. to make sense of it. <laughs> I was like, man, how am I even going to explain this on my own podcast? Like, so I'm very grateful that you all, uh, 
you guys kind of read that out for me uh, and I didn't have to. But yeah, I mean, if there is a week where if Laramie Tunsil is, you know, not truly 100 percent and kind of needs a game to get back or, or what have you, like for as good as the Falcons defense has been, they've kind of been doing it the hard way. They've been getting off the field, but they've been just doing true, you know, third down stops, right? Make a third and one. Now it's a fourth and one near midfield and the team wants to punt instead of go for it. Or maybe it is a fourth and one again and you hold them at like they've been kind of doing the the hard way. They're not getting a sack and now it's second and 16 and most of those drives more often than not are going to end in punts and you kind of know it when it's second and 16. So that is still like hopefully coming. That is what the the fan base wants to see is is sacks. Even though when you look at the pressures, when you look at the quarterback hurries and the hits, which are all very valuable as well, mm-hmm. the Falcons are doing much better in those metrics than they were last year. And they kind of have a little bit of a hockey line approach defensively on their defensive line where you'll see them bring in kind of a new wave of, of guys. Usually it's it's your older veterans, your Grady Jarrett's, your David Onyemata's, your Clayus Campbell, uh, and then Bud Dupree. That's kind of their starting line out there. Then they'll bring in, uh, Lorenzo Carter and Arnold Abicati off the other side, uh, Taquan Graham and, uh, you know, somebody, usually it's been Timmy Horn, but they kind of have a, another interior defensive lineman who they rotate in, but the pressures are there. The sacks aren't, I think CJ Stroud has been really good. Like I don't necessarily anticipate them getting him on the ground a ton. I do think the pressures can impact uh, him a little bit, but where I think this game is is going to be played defensively for Atlanta is on that back end. I really do think that is where Jerry Gray, kind of their assistant head coach in charge of the defense, but his background is in the secondary. He's with Green Bay for a long time, did, did wonders kind of over there. Everywhere he's been, the secondaries have been awesome. And the past defense for Atlanta has been really, really solid so far this year. Jesse Bates, being the veteran that he is, a really smart player, savvy, just kind of can do it all. He and CJ Stroud, mano y mano. This is the mind game that I think Atlanta needs to try to play to win this game. We saw it in week one against Bryce Young. Jesse Bates got a couple of picks. Ultimately, that kind of ended up being the difference in that game. For Atlanta to win on Sunday, I do think they're going to have to create a couple of turnovers. And so that is where I think defensively, it may not be an overwhelming pass rush, even though the the weakness for Houston right now does look to be that kind of makeshift offensive line, or at least one that's in flux and getting some guys back, but losing others and, you know, how things go in the NFL. But that is the secondary versus the, the receivers and the quarterback. That is going to be, I think, the matchup defensively for Atlanta that defines this game because they want to take away opposing passing games by scheme they want to kind of have a scheme in place that takes away your pass and then allow the athletes that they have on the field to figure out the run defense so it it is going to be a little bit of a strength on strength here for uh houston's offense and atlanta's defense which may be the most exciting matchup uh of this game because you look in the other side i think atlanta's run game matches up pretty favorably with with what houston is doing defensively in terms of missed tackles and just missed run fits as well. The Falcons are a two point favorite. Uh, Tell me how you see it playing out. Do you see, do you have a score in mind? Like, how do you see this game playing out right now? This will probably, you know, not make me the most popular person here in Atlanta when, when my own show comes out with the prediction. Uh, But I, I think Houston is, is going to win this game. You know, I just think you guys are playing better football right now. Um, the passing game, you know, like I just said, is going to be a fun matchup that I think Atlanta is ready for, especially if Jeff Okuda, who made his debut for Atlanta last week against Jacksonville and played really well in that game. Obviously a very high draft pick in his own right, uh, just didn't pan out in Detroit, but his first appearance for Atlanta was very encouraging. So if he and AJ Terrell and, and D Alford, who's in the slot and figures to see a lot of Tank Dell, if, if those guys can hold up, this will be a good game. I just, I do worry about a couple of coverage breakdowns. You get a long Nico Collins or a long Tank Dell touchdown, given Atlanta's lack of firepower. I think the two-point spread is is probably a little close, in my opinion. Obviously, it's just the spread. I kind of think Houston will be able to score 
24 points on on Atlanta's defense, which is a good outing against Atlanta's defense. And Atlanta's probably putting up like 14. So I kind of think it's going to be something along those lines where it'll maybe be close. And then we see a late score at the end. Either way, either bring it a little bit closer on Atlanta's part or, you know, increase the lead for Houston. But I, I expect to leave this game feeling that Houston was the better team. It's interesting. I know you made a lot of people in Houston uh, perk up a little bit with your prediction. Uh, you know, we're, we're at the phase now where fans will in Houston are interested in what the opposition thinks of them. Mm-hmm. And I think it's looking for confirmation, validation in what I think people here want to feel about their quarterback, want to feel about their offense, want to feel about their football team. So I think that's interesting. I, I imagine, you know, today, look, it's Wednesday. It's the first time that any fan base and, you know, anybody in the media in NFL city really kind of turns the page and starts looking ahead to Sunday's game. Um, So you probably haven't dove too far deep into the weeds with the Texans and maybe what people think uh, about, about the team from an Atlanta perspective just yet. But I imagine uh, whenever you do do your show and the more and more you hear from the fan base, uh, it's probably going to be a little bit less more so like, man, we can't let these guys beat us, but Oh boy, they're not going to sneak up on anybody anymore. Well, what Sean means is the Texans fans want some love from other fans. They want some (laughs) national love and they want some love from other fan bases. Cause it's like, Hey, we're not a joke anymore. Come on, give us a hug. Y'all are going to get jealousy from other fan bases if CJ Stroud uh, keeps yeah. keeps playing this way. I mean, uh, it's honestly it reminds me a little bit of of the way that I felt watching watching Deshaun as a rookie, where I was like, man, this dude just ha- kind of seems to have it all figured out. Now, obviously, like he was coming from Clemson, had won the national championships, was uh, much more, and CJ Stroud, notably, like he's not a no name prospect either, but a little bit of a different scenario. I think CJ Stroud has been a much more pleasant surprise. Sure. Whereas Deshaun Watson maybe had those expectations, but uh, I remember the Seattle game uh, early on in Deshaun's career, that just crazy shit. And I was watching there like, this dude is legit. Like he is going to be amazing in this league. And I kind of felt the same way watching CJ. He hasn't had that type of game yet, but you just watch the little things that he does and you can tell that the dude has it. Every every little thing, whether it's the checks at the line, whether it's the little Aaron Rodgers kind of like fade away, flick the wrist with anticipation. It's just everything that he does, I am in love with. And I've watched the Texans every game this season because, I, you know, week five, it's not that far in the future. So I try to keep an eye on all the opponents upcoming. And as much as I can, I've been telling everybody, hey, like this Texans team, do not overlook them. I think they are actually a good team not just a two and two team and bottom line, you guys don't need validation from anybody else. There is no better feeling in sports than having a young quarterback that you feel like you've got something. And of all the young quarterbacks to come out, CJ Stroud earlier than any of them looks like he has got something. So just bask in this honeymoon phase. Hey, uh, has it escaped the Falcons attention that, the Texans are doing this with yet another Kyle Shanahan disciple as their offensive coordinator. No, uh, it's it's not. I mean, Gary Kubiak, Kyle Shanahan, it's it's a very popular, successful system. Our Arthur Smith, you know, through Alex Gibbs, kind of has some of that mentality as well. And actually watching Houston's offense, it reminds me a little bit of Atlanta's. I, I think that because of the personnel on hand in Houston, there's a little bit more of a tendency to go five wide. And I think that also does play to CJ Stroud's particular strengths as well. But some of the tight formation stuff that, that you guys are doing, the bringing a fullback in, uh, I love whoever the, the I looked him up earlier. I'm blanking on his name, but the fullback was number 47 was just so active early in that game. I was like, who is this guy? Like, yeah. Yeah. He's like, he's uh y'all's Parker Hesse who is, was Mr. Do everything for the Falcons last year. And yeah, you just see the pre-stamp motions. You see the way that the wide receivers are getting good leverage blocks in the run game to free this stretch outside zone. It's not going to be an offense that I think Falcons fans are confused by because it looks very similar to what Atlanta does, which is going to be, again, a fun, I think, a fun little wrinkle on Sunday because it 
could be two two units, Houston's offense, Houston's defense, Atlanta's offense, Atlanta's defense, that when they line up against the other side, you know, it doesn't look too dissimilar from what they see on a day-to-day basis. And so then it could come down to execution. It could come down to who's got the right play call at the right time. And and that's what makes just memorable football games. Remind us about your show and tell people how to connect with you on social media in case maybe Texans fans want to reach out, ask you a question about the Falcons or something. Yeah, you guys can uh, follow me on Twitter at Will McFadden, which is nice and simple because that's my name. Uh, and then one of the reasons why I you know, know a lot of the, about each opponent the Falcons play is because I've got a piece that will be going out Thursday uh, called Bird's Eye View, which is a just quick synopsis of all of the teams remaining on Atlanta's schedule and how they did the week prior. So if anybody wants to uh, to check that out, see what I have to say about Houston. Again, it's nice and nice and quick, like a tweet length review of the game and then a best player on offense and defense, things like that. But you guys can head over to the uh, falcolic.com and check that out. And then, you know, if you want to see what Ovi Mahaley, former Falcons fullback, has to say about uh, the game on Sunday, you can follow up on Believe in Falcons Monday morning and uh, check out our podcast. Awesome, man. Thank you. Thanks so much, Will. Great stuff. Thanks for giving us some time. Of course. Thank you guys so much for having me. And uh, best of luck to you all on Sunday. You too, man. Thank you. Great stuff from Will, Sean. And in just a few minutes, we're going to preview the Astros and Twins. Quick reminder that we've got our live Astros postseason postgame show starting Saturday. My old partner, Stephen Kerr, comes back for that. But, Sean, let's start off with uh, a little Texans before we get to the Astros. Inquiring minds want to know, any chance we see Denzel Perryman or Tavier Thomas on Sunday? They were back at practice but didn't have their hands uh, out of the wraps yet, I guess you could say they're un- they're under wrap. Yeah, it's it's TBD. Like I, I mentioned before, with all of those guys, I mean everybody's got clubs on. Josh Jones has a club on his right hand. Tavier Thomas has a club on. Denzel Perryman has a club on. <laughs> These ham hand injuries during the regular season, it's almost matched the number of hamstring injuries you saw during the preseason with the Texans. It's been kind of crazy. Uh, not to mention Titus Howard's hand, my gosh, which he hadn't been wearing a hard cast since the very early stages right after he had had his surgery. So, uh, which I think is key because Tavier Thomas isn't far removed from surgery on his hand. Josh Jones is just a week or so removed from surgery on his. Denzel Perryman, probably the same. There's not much you can do, I think. You know, using your hands, especially at that middle linebacker, uh, position. It's one thing to maybe be an interior lineman and playing with a club kind of thing on your hand. It's another thing to be able to be at at a position where you got to wrap up and bring guys down. Henry Toa Toa has done such a good job over the course of the last two games in just being able to understand what he's seeing in the backfield and just react instead of just thinking so much. He's playing a lot faster. He's coming along. I think you're going to see both of these guys on the field Sunday. It's just my gut instinct. I don't think Perryman's going to be clubbed up. I think it's probably going to be a heavy wrap. And I only say that because typically on Wednesdays, you want to get guys out there that have a chance to play, whether they practice in full or limited. You want to see what they can do. By Friday, that's really going to be the telltale on, on those guys particularly, Tavier, Denzel, and Josh Jones, because what – and I'm gauging Titus. I'm using Titus as a gauge here. He started with the club, then went to a harder wrap, then went to a soft wrap when he tried to give it a go before they placed him on IR. And it was like, okay, when he dressed in full that day, he gave it a go. It just wasn't happening with the club. And I think you're going to have to see progression in terms of what they're doing with these guys' hands and their ability to move and play with uh, whatever apparatus they, they have for them. So it's going to be a wait-and-see process, but it's just good to have them out there moving around doing football things. Yeah, the, the good old days you would have Josh Jones could use that club hand and hit a guy upside the helmet or something like yeah. that. Yeah. What, what was I? I was watching something the other night. Uh, there was like a little snippet of a documentary of old guys. It was a John Madden coach team. So what was it? Raiders? Who else? Yeah. Raiders. Raiders back in the 70s. Was it well, just the Raiders? Yeah, yeah. Well, look at the Rams back in the, you know, that era of the Deacon Jones and Merlin Olsen. I think it was Deacon. That was like one of his signature moves that they had to outlaw yeah. was he would take his hand, hit a guy in the helmet. 
immediately, and that would put him off balance just enough to where he could get by him. Sure, but it was one thing to use your hand and have it wrapped and all that stuff. But what I was watching is on one of those Jad- John Madden Raiders teams, Hall of Fame player, I can't remember his name, but they used to they gave props to the trainer because he used to soak this tape in this like casting you know stuff, and it would make it hard. And so he'd put it on this guy's arm and in his hands and then wrap it. So he looked like he was wearing this club too, but he had it on his arm. And all he'd do is you talking about, man, I'd just get right up underneath some guy's face mask and just pop, you know? Well, if it was a Raider, you would think it was, you would be scared it was a knife or a gun in there or something. He's got something (laughs) snuck in. Those Raiders, they they don't play around. I mean, that that team. Oh, it was serious. Yeah, it was, it was pretty funny, man. I'm going to have to send you the clip and maybe I'll post it on social if I can find it. But John Madden was just like, well, you know, they check the guys before the game, uh, but who's to say what we do after they check us, you know, and the yeah. things that we can do during the game. And so <laughs> it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek wink and nod, like, yeah, we knew what we were doing. Sounds like total Raiders to me. Hey, the Texans, speaking of uh, guys that rush the passer, we're talking about the Rams, and the Texans have two edge players in the top 20 in ESPN's pass rush win rate. Will Anderson's third at 31%, third in the NFL at 31%, Grenard 17th at 20%. The Texans' season pressure rate is 44.4%, third in the NFL. And, Sean, that might surprise a few folks. Yeah, I mean, it probably does, especially if you look at Will's numbers uh, because he's not getting the sack numbers. But the way that he's affecting the game, even if he doesn't particularly get a pressure, I mean, he gets double teamed, uh, you know, so much through these first four weeks, it's freeing up other guys to go and make plays. And it's kind of fascinating that he commands so much attention, but that just tells me the teams are watching the film and they understand what they're seeing. They're giving this guy the respect that that's already been earned and that he's a disruptive player. And we're going to have to focus our attention on a guy like that which is great, especially when you're getting complimentary play uh, on the interior. Sheldon Rankins has been an absolute monster. And the rush that you're seeing coming from the other edge as well, Jerry Hughes has gotten to the quarterback. Jonathan Bernard's gotten to the quarterback. Guys are making plays. They're affecting plays. They're forcing quarterbacks to get rid of the football uh, quicker than they want to, um, not go through their progressions, make poor decisions. So I think in that regard, pay a little bit closer attention to what's happening to create the Texans pass rush. Not necessarily always who's the guy getting there, but how are they getting there? More good news. The Texans, and I don't know if people have noticed this, they're number 10 in the NFL in point differential. And you can, yeah. you know, play with that stat, I guess. And you could say, well, what does that really mean? But Fun. for me, yeah. it's one of the best ways just to kind of figure out, you know, where you are amongst other teams at this moment. And and point differential to me matters because it kind of gives the bigger picture that the record might not indicate. It's the best differential of all two and two teams. So that's something. And then CBSSports.com, Sean, has the Texans number 12 in their power rank. Yeah, I mean, people are taking notice. Uh, I love the fact that, you know, uh, people are talking about your quarterback. People are talking about your head coach. People are talking about your football team's result. I looked at those differential numbers, too, the the other day. I think they're fourth in the AFC in point differential. Like They're first in their division. They're 10th in the NFL, as you mentioned. And I think probably amongst all of those stats in terms of differential, what's most impressive is, yeah, among the 12 2-2 two two teams, they have the best. Uh, point differential. So it is cool, but we've watched these games. We know what we're seeing. They've held opponents uh, the last two games uh, to what? Six points against uh, the Steelers. And what did they, what did they allow uh, the Jags? I can't remember because I'm getting Atlanta's numbers mixed up in my head too, but they've taken care of business defensively. They've gotten to the quarterback. They've made plays in the secondary, which shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody. And in fact, you know, you should be even more excited about what this Texans defense is able to do against this Falcons offense, which is run heavy to this point. Even if Desmond Ritter does have a better game on Sunday and he shows a little bit of progress and maybe is able to find some of those weapons offensively, whether it be a Pitts or a Collins or Drake London, I feel pretty good about what the Texans secondary has done to this point, even without Derek Stingley. So call it a wash there. But look at what the Texans' defense is doing from a run defense perspective. They were 32 across the board the last three years in the NFL. 
and they have a middling run defense right now. Now, where they need to shore things up is when teams are getting into the red zone, I think they're leading the league. They're the worst team in the NFL in terms of uh, touchdowns allowed on the ground in the red zone. Just as you hear all the time, offenses, and we've heard it a couple of weeks now from the Texans' offensive perspective, hey, we need to be better in the red zone, better in the red zone, finish drives. Well, Texans need to finish defensive drives. They they need to be more consistent at getting off the field on third downs. And I know we just heard Will McFadden break down like how well the Falcons are getting off of third downs. They're eighth best in the league. Texans, they're dead last in the red zone in terms of what they're allowing on the ground to, from a defensive standpoint. So that aside, the numbers are pretty darn incredible through the first four weeks in terms of the amount of improvement that they've had especially considering what this linebacker core has looked like to this point and the injuries that they've incurred uh, in the secondary as well. Yeah, Bijan will be the focus, I'm sure. That is something we will be talking about in the post-game show on Sunday, our regular live Texans post-game show. Quick note before we jump into the Astros, in the next 24 hours, look for my conversation with the original Houston Arrows forward, Jack Stanfield. In the last two weeks, they celebrated, the Arrows did, their 50th anniversary season, I asked him about playing with Mr. Hockey, Gordy Howe, who played right here in Houston, Texas, back in the 70s, and also with his two sons, including his Hall of Fame son, Mark. If you don't know the amazing legacy of the Arrows and how they changed NHL history without even getting into the league, you got to check out this show. All right, let's turn the page to the Astros, Sean, and Carlos Correa. Dallas Keuchel, and Hank Conger, the bot, the Conger bot. It's coming to Minute Maid Park Saturday. Hank Conger's on the Twins. <laughs> I, I, he's in the coaching staff, I believe, yeah. Is he really? God bless. I, I'm glad he's still in baseball, man. I miss that dude. That was fun times. It makes me feel old because it doesn't seem like it was that long ago, but I guess it really was. Boy, I, you excited about this? I mean, this is what you wanted, right? This it, you kind of get the best of both worlds. You win the division and you get the twins for the first round. That's pretty sweet. I like the matchup a lot. Um, I, I think, and it, it's more about the Astros than it is the opponent because you go into the postseason with the same concern that we've been talking about all season long, really. And that's the starting pitching. I make that my focus, but the trickle down effect is how dusty is going to manage this bullpen if you get what you had been getting for the majority of the season from your starting pitching, are you buying into that or are you buying more into what we've seen from this starting pitching within the last week and a half, which has been pretty damn tremendous? Well, am I buying into what, what the Astros can do against the twins? I don't know because you go, well, it's the twins. The Astros have had a lot of success against the twins over the last few years. Mm -hmm. However, the twins have not, one in the postseason in 21 years. I mean, this is a team that typically chokes in the postseason. Carlos Correa, three for seven in the wild card series, big time defense. Honestly, you know, I'm happy for Twins fans because uh, they, they've had this big drought. You can't hate Minnesotans. Yeah. But, John, the problem is Twins gave up one run in two games against Toronto, didn't have to kill their pitching staff over the last couple of days. They're wrapped it up in two games. And if the Astros fans don't know, the Twins have the second best ERA in the American League this year, only behind the Mariners, who, as we know, are on vacation. Yeah, it's tough. And they might be a team of destiny, as you mentioned, you know, with this historical uh, series win and just them getting their first playoff win since, what, 2014 it was the other day, <laughs> which was a longer stretch than any professional sports organization had gone between playoff victories pretty crazy. I worry about the team of destiny thing. And you've got two of them on your side of the bracket, the Minnesota Twins and the Baltimore Orioles. And the Orioles for a much, <laughs> much similar reason. But uh, I worry about them from a team-wide standpoint because some tough series uh, you played against them this season. Uh, they've got some good players over there. But in regards to the Twins, yeah, look, they're going to be rested. This is like the worst case scenario in, ter in terms of the way you got to the Twins. You wanted to see the Twins and the Blue Jays kind of battle it out and go the full three. But, you know, what's what's one more day, a couple more days? At the end of it all, the Astros, they're in. They got hot, maybe at the right time. They put it all together. 
they're going to have an opportunity now in a few days to see if they still got it. And if you go Justin Verlander, if you go Fromber uh, Valdez, that is the tone setter, man. That is the tone setter. You've got to get the very best that you've gotten out of either one of those guys at any point. Um, so even over the course of the last week, week and a half that we'd seen those guys pitch and they came up huge. Verlander was vintage uh, in his last outing, right? Um, but you've got to get the very best out of those guys to set the tone for the Astros ball club because when they play with confidence, that to me is it is a thing. They're hard to beat. Hey, Jose Abreu, he's taken a bunch of bullets. What a weekend he had. He was responsible for all three runs in those first two games that basically got you in the playoffs before you knew you could, you could even win the division. I think he got another RBI and, 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 and the game on Sunday. Also, his defense was fantastic yeah. this weekend. And let me just point out, Sean, because, you know, in my mind, he's still that terrible guy that I saw in March and April, and the numbers don't seem like they've changed a whole lot. But – I went back his last 82 games, 82 games since June the 7th. So this is now June, July, August, September. I can count on my fingers. It's four months. In four months, he has a 256 batting average, 313 on base, 470 slugging, and 783 OPS. So really, you almost have in the last four months what you thought you were paying for for Jose Abreu. It's not a bad way to frame it, to be honest with you. Um... Looking at what he did this season in totality, uh, with the OPS numbers down, on-base percentage down, batting average way down. Um, I know the home run numbers and the RBI numbers, you know, actually up a tick in terms of like from a percentage standpoint and what he even did the year prior to that. I get it. You can, you can, it's a beautiful thing about numbers and I love baseball stats because you can look at them a couple of different ways. It is more important about what this guy's been doing recently. And since he'd come back, you know, from that back issue that he'd had that, what was he got? Maybe like almost 10 days, two weeks, something like that. Um, Hopefully that's been, you know, something that you, the Astros deemed correctable and has since been corrected. And if you can get a healthy Jose Abreu riding into the postseason, uh, with all the confidence in the world he should have right now with the way that he'd finished the regular season. That's a huge plus um, because I, I really do think when he'd started the season with his ball club and just started, just didn't see the results for months, I really do think early on the pressure got to him. And whether that be just moving ball club to ball club, city to another city, family stuff, just not seeing success, routine being thrown off, um, figuring out, man, how am I going to live up to this contract? You know, he knows he's been declining. All of these things weigh and factor in at some point in time. Guys should be playing with a lot of confidence right now. And I guarantee you one of the things that he's probably looked at to help him at the plate is how he can help the Astros in the field. And more times than not, dude, he's done it. I'm not saying he's a gold glove first baseman uh, defensively over there, but he's pretty damn good, okay? And that's something you don't want to talk about. It's boring, worried about the lack of, uh, you know, uh, numbers at the plate. But he's been a damn good first baseman. And sometimes if you're able to start looking at the successes that you do have, it can make you better at what you haven't been seeing results at. And I think that's what you're seeing with him. Really, three spots in the lineup that you're going to be looking at a lot in this series. Well, three guys in the lineup. You're going to yeah. be looking, who are they playing? Because we know Jordan's going to play mm-hmm. either left or DH. Mm-hmm. So that leaves center field and left field and or center field and DH. And it, Dubon's going to be playing center field for Verlander. So is Brantley going to be out of the lineup or is Chaz going to be out of the lineup? And when uh, Javier pitches, I assume more of a fly ball pitcher, uh, maybe Dubon play center field there. I don't know, but that's the real question, Mark, is it's going to come down to uh, outside of Verlander when we know Dubon's going to be in center field. Are they going to, are, is Dusty going to let Chaz play center field? Is he going to have him play left, or is it going to be Michael Brantley? It's, it might depend on matchups, but one of those guys, either Brantley or McCormick or Dubon, is going to be out of the lineup every single game. Yeah, um, it'll be interesting. I mean, gun to my head, if Dubon's in center, I'd love to see Chaz in left. 
uh, especially if Verlander starts this uh, first game of the series against the Twins. And I say that because you've already had five days off with Michael Brantley. Give him the sixth and make him one of the best bats possible on any team available off the bench. Um, and he's not going to play every day. Okay, and you could ask yourself, well, like, oh, what did they save him for? You know, what did they need him back for so much? Well, it's to contribute, but it, it took a lot longer than they anticipated, right? You know, this was his third comeback after this most recent 10-day stint of being sore and having to get over that. You're trying to get him right for the postseason. Well, you're not going to undo everything that you'd worked up to build within the first series or even couple of days and do something out of character, which is play him on back-to-back days in a major role. So I think because they're going to continue to handle Brantley carefully um, and keep him as a healthy bat option off the bench, you can have Dubon in center um, outside of just Verlander, uh, if you deem necessary, and still have Chaz McCormick, which is vital to me in this team defensively and offensively. Have him in the lineup more times than not. Who you didn't mention, which I'm interested to see how they get creative here and get his bat in the lineup, is Yiner Diaz. Because nope. I, I don't know that I would anticipate anything outside of Maldonado starting every single game. <laughs> you know, at catcher. I mean, you're going to trust a rookie catcher. Is Dusty going to trust a rookie catcher in Yiner Diaz um, to start in the playoffs? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think we're going to see Yiner Diaz. And just you asking about. Chaz, it's it's all righties. So that works in Brantley's favor as far as this series goes because it's all righties that the Astros are facing, at least among starters. Now, once you get into the bullpens, maybe there's a shot where Chaz McCormick can get in there. But I, I could see, unless there's a particular matchup, I could see Brantley starting practically every single game, either in left field or at DH, and, and yeah. assuming Jordan's going to be playing left. And I just, I wouldn't, DH, okay, if Jordan plays left, yeah. I mean, it's one thing to hit as opposed to, you know, asking him to play every day in the field and stuff like that. But, hell, I even go back to this. You know, he hurt his shoulder hitting. Um, And I, I just. Yeah, I, 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 don't want to, I don't like to be too precious about him playing the field when we're talking about trying to win a world. Once you get in the playoffs. I know, look, I know, I know what we're talking about. And sometimes yeah. you got you to deviate in the postseason from what you did in the regular season, because what you do during the regular season is an effort to get you to the playoffs. And when you're in the playoffs, you're going to do whatever's necessary. Wait, when has but, he gotten hurt in the field? When does that happen? Well, that's what I'm saying. I don't know. I, 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 he got hurt at the plate. <laughs> he gets hurt. He gets hurt, you know, swinging the bat. Yeah. He's gotten hurt at the plate or, or what he, I don't remember him getting hurt in the field. Like this isn't somebody that I, has been dealing with like hamstrings and right, right. this is not soft tissue issues that I think is much like this isn't Will Fuller or Arian Foster that we're talking about with with his issues. So it's hard to really figure out, you know, what you do with Jordan. Now, with Jordan or or Brantley, I mean, it's your I don't worry about Jordan. We're, we're talking about Brantley here. And I, I just I don't know how they're going to use him if he DHs. OK, are you still going to DH him on back to back days? I mean, wouldn't you DH Yiner and give Brantley a day off just to get Yiner's bat in the lineup? Because, you know, he ain't going to catch. Um, yeah, I, I just think they're a lot more positive with Chaz or Brantley. Those guys are going to play over Yiner. Yiner's play discipline is very it's hit miss. And it's a lot of times it's miss. He swings at some crazy stuff and. You want somebody that's got played this and been in, and, and guys that's going to work counts in the playoffs. That matters. And I don't know if Yonner is is trusted yet there with Dusty. Yeah, he could pinch hit later in games. That's potentially a, a deal with with you know obviously Maldi, but otherwise, I, I don't expect to see him start any games. I don't know, man. Dude can hit. I know he misses sometimes, but a lot of ball players do. The bottom line is, you know, the dude's produced. Was he got like four or five home runs in the last month of the season at a six, seven game hitting streak? The guy's produced when he's in the lineup. You got to, Dana Brown said it a week and a half ago. Okay. And the day that he said it, I don't think Yiner was in the lineup at all. But he was like, when the Astros were playing one of those must win games in that final stretch uh, against the Mariners and, and Diamondbacks got to have our best bats in the lineup it's all on dusty it's his decision you know remember when he put him under uh you put the onus on him it's all on dusty 
he he pours over this. He makes the decisions. But we got to have our best bats in the lineup. Well, what's changed from that mentality that you needed to have a week ago to in the next couple of days when you start your postseason run? Nothing. You still need your best bats in the lineup, your best players, the guys that are going to give you the best chance to win. Yiner is factored into that and has been talked about at nauseum for not being in the lineup when he should be. There's no way I could be comfortable um, with Yiner Diaz not being a major factor in the postseason for the Astros in some form or fashion. We're rooting for the Rangers over the Orioles, right? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, I. I the, did you say the Royals? Did you say the Royals? You meant no, the Rangers over the Orioles. Yeah, over Orioles. the Orioles. Over the Orioles. Oh, um, yeah, I, I guess. But in the back of my mind, there's like, man, careful what you wish for, because I, I don't want to give them another opportunity. You know what I mean? Like, I, I guess there's just that little bit of fear. Uh, but in terms of like, hey, what we've seen with our own eyes, what we should feel good about, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Again. I'm- I, from this standpoint, maybe alone, I don't want to face a freaking team of destiny, okay? I don't want to face that Orioles squad. 100 wins for the Orioles, but, yeah, just you got to get through this series. You know, this is not the Astros that we've seen in the past as far as they're starting pitching. So I am going into this with, hey, if they win, it's bonus. It's, you know, this has been a season where I just haven't trusted this team looking forward to the playoffs because of the starting pitching. So if, if they do pull it off, it's just a, it, it's, it's a little bit extra and just like have fun with it this time. Hey, we got the championship in the bank, you know, last year and two in the last six years. So uh, just have fun with this season. Now you're talking about it. Like it's house money, man. No, they need to go out there and win this damn thing. You, uh, <laughs> you fought too hard to get to this point. I mean, people were ready to throw them and crumble them up and throw them in the trash can couple weeks ago when they were looking like they were going to be dead in the water and out of the postseason altogether. I mean, they busted their ass. They put it together. They showed some dog. They went and they got the division. They needed a little help. You know, hey, you can. I'll, I'll, I'll listen to you talk about how the Mariners choked this thing away. I'll listen to you talking about how the Rangers choked the division away. Uh, but, hell, when somebody else is losing and you're doing your job and you're winning, I don't care how you got there. You got there. You're division champions. You're in it. Now go win the damn thing. It ain't how right. winning. <laughs> all right uh let's do it then uh astros uh let's uh get this one and the you know the rockets we will we'll save them for another day they had the media day it seems like uh we got to save that one a little bit for a longer conversation down the road but uh we'll talk to you guys again for the astros post game show sean's going to be back for the texans post game on sunday against the braves and fingers crossed that they somehow move to the astros to the night game on sunday because right now they are playing on Sunday, so it's going to be a busy sports weekend this weekend. Have a good one, everybody. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Hey, don't forget to support us by subscribing and commenting on YouTube. You can always listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends about us and share our show links on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.